Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comment sections of my Q&A videos on YouTube. Hey, everybody. Welcome back, and thank you for inviting me into your home again this week. I hope you all got a chance to check out my podcast yesterday with Dodge Landisman, uh, the uh, NBC affiliate anchor reporter who was fired from his job in Arizona um, by the um, overlords of that affiliate station who buckled under Scientology's phone calls and legal threats uh, and decided to just get rid of the uh, person who they felt was responsible for the problem i.e. Mr. Landisman, rather than actually face up to some uh, actual, you know, integrity of reporting and stand by their people. So we got to go over that story in some detail, and he also got to ask me as many questions as I asked him. So we had some very nice back and forth. I hope you'll be able to check that out. And I also hope that um, you all might check out on replay the live shows that I am doing on Friday nights. They are we sort of changed things up a little bit um, in terms of formatting of that show. It's still a call-in show. I still take calls from people. But I uh, got some feedback from you all on, you know, what it is you really want to see on this channel and from me. And surprise, it's more of me, <laughs> which was like, what? So, but of course, also maybe bringing on some guests and uh, more conversation uh, will definitely be occurring between uh, my wife and I when she is on the show, which she is uh, most of the time, so that we will have those critical conversations you guys can see on numerous topics having to do with the subject of this channel. And for those of you new to the channel or have just come around, this channel is not like other YouTube channels. The content here is not just a, a one-week wonder. We are good for a good ever, actually. The, it's called evergreen content. And that means you have an extensive library of videos on this channel to go through to find out answers to your questions about Scientology coercive control, destructive cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, um, Nexium, uh, Bill Gothard's, you know, the Duggar family nonsense. Uh, all kinds of stuff is covered on this channel. And the content that I've put out is for you guys to always be able to reference and look at. And I hope you will take the advantage of what I've got here for you. YouTube doesn't help me organize it as well as I would like, but it is all there for you. And I have put some playlists together and things like that. So uh, with all that being said, let's get on with your questions. Mac Zimdars, are some leisure activities for enjoyment acceptable in Scientology? Are you allowed to watch TV as a Scientologist? If so, what are the quote-unquote rules? For example, can you watch an NBA game in the evenings after a day of work? Are you even allowed to have your own TVs, or is there a communal TV? All right, Mac, thank you very much for this question. Now, it's you're asking about uh, Scientology, but it sounds a little bit like you might be thinking of the C organization, which is Scientology's sort of cloistered fanatic band of, of people who are the ones who sign the billionaire contracts, who live communally. That's what, what sort of suggests in your question that maybe you're asking about them. Because Scientologists, as a general class of believers or people or people who practice Scientology, are just like you and me. They're, they live out in the real world. They got houses, jobs, kids, cars, you know, white picket fences, all of that. And they, of course, they have TVs if they want, and they watch TV just like anybody else does. They 
Uh, we'll get in a moment to, you know, maybe what they don't watch, but they don't watch that by choice, by by their own um through their own action, right? That they that they'll enforce that on themselves. Uh, staff members as well. When you're talking about people who work for Scientology at the city level churches, like Denver or New York or Milano or wherever, um, here you're talking about city level churches, and those are occupied by staff who sign two and a half or five year contracts of commitment, and um, and some of them might be on their fourth five year contract or something, but they are contracted on that on that kind of time period, not the billion year thing. And those people tend to be supported by a spouse or have another job or somehow able to keep themselves going. And they don't live on the property and they have a TV just like everybody else. Uh, you know, like I said, now Sea Org uh, live on Sea Org bases. Uh, these are centralized bases of operation like the big blue buildings in Los Angeles. That is a Sea Org base. There's one in Sydney. There's one in. Uh, there's a small one in New York. Uh, of course, there is a Sea Org base in Clearwater, Florida. That's a rather large one, dispersed all around the downtown area. There is one in St. Hill uh, at the um, East Grinstead in in the UK, and there is one in Copenhagen um, in Denmark. And those are uh, official Scientology Sea Org bases where they communally live. The the Sea Org members. And no, they do not have TVs. And at least not, you know, when I was there, they didn't. We did have a TV that would sometimes be brought out in the main mess, in the in the galley area where we would eat food. We would gather there to have breakfast, lunch, dinner. And if there was, you know, some kind of an award or, you know, a movie night or something, then we would be able to watch movies there. Or if there was something, and I can count on one hand the number of times this happened in the 17 years that I worked at the Big Blue base in, in Los Angeles, it was really only a handful of times that they rolled the TV out for to show us, say, a Super Bowl during meal times. And you couldn't sit there and watch the entire Super Bowl, but at least while you had your half hour dinner time, oh, wow, Super Bowl, right? Or, you know, some other uh, news event. I think when 9-11 happened, we had the TV out and there was some, and we were following the news on that to one degree or another. But um, that was only for like a day or two. That does not, it's not an extended thing. Never is. Uh, TV was a, was a major, major reward. And the reason for that is because L. Ron Hubbard specifically wrote an issue, a policy for the Sea Org that stated in no uncertain terms that TV was addictive. It was bad for you. It rotted your brain. And, and he didn't want Sea Org members uh, getting addicted to soap operas or other television nonsense because it was a major distraction to their work and it took them off of post and they would, you know, even escape from their post for a little while and go to their dorm room and watch some TV. And so this was nope, nope, nope. All the TVs confiscated. Nobody's got TV and this is completely not okay. Now, over the years, this would be circumvented by little tiny video players or DVD players. We used to have those, remember, that would be portable and you could watch a DVD on a little screen, uh, or you, maybe we had a laptop computer. I had a laptop when I was in the Sea Org, and I could watch DVDs on that uh, in my dorm room late at night, or in my um, my married room because I was married, you know, for most of the time I was in the Sea Org. 
So, so there were ways of circumventing some of these rules as long as you weren't blatant and obvious about it or too loud, right? You listened to it on the headphones late at night, tucked under your bed, and you know you didn't want the security guys to confiscate your DVDs. But at one point, they did come through and confiscate everybody's DVDs because somebody was found watching a DVD in the middle of the afternoon in their room, right? And it was like, oh, my God, right? RTC was had a cow and uh, and security had to go through and take everyone's DVDs. And there were, uh, what is it, uh, plastic bags, trash bags full. I'm talking like 20, 30 bags of just DVDs shoved in room after room, just going through and taking them all and shoving them all down in the basement. And nobody cared that that was your property or you had taken hundreds of dollars over the years to accumulate a DVD collection. Nobody cared. Uh, that was not yours anymore. It was the Sea Orgs, and uh, and it was just too bad. And and that was the, that was literally how it went. Uh, nobody could protest this, and if they tried, they were um, you know convinced to shut the fuck up, basically, right? To be blunt. So um, so that was life in the Sea Org on my watch uh, when it came to TV, and I can't and I've seen no reason to think that that's changed. I do know that people have more access now to devices and uh, iPads and things like that. And as I, I believe they install filtering software on those devices so that they can't access the bad stuff. But, you know, I don't really know. They've been, you know, the thing about enforcement of rules, and especially in the Sea Org, is they go in waves. They'll come in hard and they'll enforce it hard and everybody's in trouble. And then that moment passes and then it goes kind of back to, well, we've got some other thing we're worried about. There's some other problem or issue that demands our attention. And then over time, you know, people start getting their DVDs back or they buy new ones or they get, you know, or whatever. And people before, you know, a year or two later, people are back to watching DVDs in their room. So, you know, life will find a way, so to speak, when it comes to that kind of thing. You know, Sea Org members need a release. Uh, they need some time to themselves. They're human beings. And people, even in uh, concentration camp situations, would find ways of finding joy and laughter and, and comedy or humor or some relief even in the very worst of conditions, um, human beings are kind of good at that uh, because it's necessary to our survival. And so Sea Org members are no different from that when they're faced with, you know, rather authoritarian conditions. You know, they often work in subtle ways, not big, broad, riotous, you know, protesty ways. That doesn't happen. Individuals just sort of individually start breaking little tiny rules that they don't really think matter that much because in the big scheme of things, they don't. But, you know, that's like I said, and then another wave will happen. Somebody will screw up and an RTC person or some big wig will see somebody screwing up and what's this now and pretend all this moral outrage about, you know, like they're not doing the same thing. You know, oh, this is unacceptable. And, you know, arr, 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 and suddenly, you know, down come the bayonets again. So, that's kind of my experience with that. Um, you know, can you now, as far as, you know, maybe more broadly addressing your question of, well, what about big, what about public Scientologists who don't have 
a security force monitoring their life on a day-to-day basis. Well, they are told, and they, they definitely pick up from the culture of Scientology, word of mouth and watching and listening to people, that there are things that are acceptable and there are things that are unacceptable. And if they get into really looking at something that they shouldn't be, like my channel or Leah's, you know, the Scientology in the Aftermath or, uh, you know, any of the number of things that are out there now, um, they'll definitely get reported on if somebody finds out about that. And the ethics officer will, will pull them in and go, you know, hey, what are you watching this crap for? Uh, this is a bunch of lies about Scientology. We're, you know, the truth of it is right here. So what are you doing that for, right? And they'll be like, oh, well, well I just wanted to see. Well, what is, what are you, what, what's happening with you that you think you want to see that, right? And then they'll start invasively uh, burrowing into this person's personal life to find out what kind of doubts and reservations they have about Scientology that are causing them to go watch this N theta. And after about one or two of those kind of interviews with an ethics officer, where you have to kind of start confessing to things that maybe you did and maybe you didn't, but they're not going to let you out until you, until you say something, you know, you go through one or two of those kind of experiences. And if you still want to remain a Scientologist, you learn to just keep, you know, keep your eyes on the off of that stuff and not, not look at any of that. And this is reinforced within the world of Scientology by the fact that they believe the e-meter works and that an e-meter is unbeatable and an e-meter is something that can register their deepest thoughts. And so if they are trying to hide from a church auditor or sec checker or confessor, right, um, that they have been doing bad things, then the e-meter is going to fib on them. It's going to tell the auditor everything, even though they're sitting there saying nothing. And so they know they're going to get in trouble anyway, so they just don't do it. And they just, it's easier, the path of least resistance here is just don't watch Leah's show, right? Just don't pay attention to Chris Shelton. That's, that's easier. And that's, the, that's information control. That's thought control. And that is uh, what cults like Scientology excel at doing. And that's how they do it. So, um, so yeah, so you're allowed to watch TV as a Scientologist. You know, of course you are. You'd, you'd want to watch all the things that the Scientologist celebrities are in, of course, right? I mean, every Scientologist has seen Top Gun Maverick. Uh, of course they have, right? They worship Tom Cruise. They've seen every one of his movies. And, you know, and John Travolta comes out with a new thing or Elizabeth Moss comes out with a new thing. Of You know, Scientologists are going to want to go see that. So, um, so there aren't really, other than avoiding any negative press or media about Scientology itself or something that, you know, is kind of like Scientology, even though it doesn't use the word, like that old movie, The Master, uh, you know, or, um, you know, things like that, then um, there aren't any other real rules uh, regarding that that I can think of or remember right now. So there you go. Julianna McFarland, do Scientologists tend to report the same kinds of paranormal experiences that people in mainstream culture do? I'm thinking of things like seeing ghosts or after-death communications. It seems like those kinds of experiences would be inconsistent with Scientology's views on life after death. What an interesting question, Julianna. Thank you for asking me this. And actually, it's kind of funny because you say it seems like they'd be inconsistent, but actually, in my way of thinking, and when I was a Scientologists, certainly, 
those kinds of paranormal experiences or activities were exactly the kind of thing we expected to see and hear about. And we looked for that and, and would tend to validate stories that would prove the existence of spirits or uh, past lives or any kind of, you know, ghost-like experiences. This was all completely accounted for within the Scientology belief set. Uh, my dad would tell me when I was a kid things like, oh, you don't have to be afraid of ghosts. Ghosts are just spirits that are, don't have a body. And he said, and he would say, you know, you see these movies where ghosts are moving things around or throwing stuff around or being spooky and trying to scare people. And my dad was always kind of like, yeah, what's the big deal? You know, hey, you can pick up stuff. Guess what? So can I. You know, like, here I am picking stuff up. Whoa, I can throw it too. You know, what's the big deal, right? Like he wasn't completely unimpressed with the whole idea of ghostly phenomena and said it was no big deal. And you would just tell the person, he said, if you're dealing with something like this, if this, if this were to happen, and he absolutely believed it could, you know, a haunting, some, some Phaeton hanging around after he died, he's not going and getting another body. And my dad was like, tell him to go get one, you know, just step straight up, go Go get a body, right? Point to the local hospital. Go, go, get out of here. What are you bugging me for? You know, it was that kind of attitude. And frankly, I kind of, that helped me as a kid to overcome fear of the unknown and fear of spirits and ghosts and goblins and demons and things. You know what I mean? It, it actually did help me to have this more sort of practical, matter of fact approach to it, not be so freaked out. It's very interesting, isn't it? How freaked out people get by uh, the idea that there could be some invisible, you know, non-corporeal entity spying on you and watching you and, and haunting your house or your castle. It's it's very, very funny when you actually break it down and think about it a little bit. Um, and as far as after-death communications or telepathy or any of this kind of stuff, it's all there, right? Because a spirit, a, a thetan is in the Scientology sense of thinking about these things is the actual life force. It's the actual entity. It's the thing that really exists through all of time because it doesn't, it doesn't acknowledge time. It doesn't age. A Thetan is just always is. And so, um, so the idea that they would, that they might drop their body or die and be still around and able to be communicated with was was like as as ordinary a thought in Scientology as sandwiches are made with bread. I mean, it was that kind of thinking. It was like, well, duh, of course. And uh, and really, the only question was kind of like, why are you hanging around? You know, you can't get audited this way. You can't go up the bridge this way. You can. It's not going to help you in any way to haunt someplace or whatever. But as far as the um, communicating with them. Well, sure, because telepathy is a thing in Scientology. It's not a common thing. It's not something that people talk, run around talking about or, hey, read my mind. But I used to play games with my mom. Again, this is all kind of cultural. It's sort of some people are into it and some people aren't, right? Growing up, I used to play little telepathy games with my mom, which were really just guessing games. But we had a lot of fun with it because we would use it to confirm our idea that we had this spiritual connection where we could kind of, you know, communicate without having to use words and wasn't this fun. And, and it, you know, made me closer to my mom. And you all know, if you've watched my interview with my mom, how awesome she is. 
and what a great relationship we have. And that was those kind of things were completely goofball exercises to do with a kid, make him believe it's true. I think that's a little silly, but at the same time, we, you know, we did get closer as a result of that. Um, so it's not like I'm faced with a bunch of regrets about all of that. I think it's funny, you know, but only because now I can see it for what it was. So, um, yeah, so that kind of thing is totally par for the course in Scientology. And there are often, often claims made by Scientologists uh, that in their auditing sessions or outside of session, they can hear other people thinking and they can. Uh, I had one guy, um, my godfather, in fact, uh, who worked in, in the Santa Barbara church with me, who told me he had to turn his telepather off. Uh, he was an OT, and he imagined that he could hear other people's thoughts all the time. And he was like, ah, it's noisy. You don't want to, you know, it's no fun. You know, it's not a fun superpower, right? And you want to turn that thing off. So, you know, okay, that's, that's kind of how Scientologists think and talk and, and relate to each other. So, um, so there you go. Lisa Vandenhoven. Chris, have you ever covered or looked into the cult-like environment that seemed to lead to the Iraq war torture of prisoners at Abu Ghraib? Perhaps it was something covered in your academic work on high control groups. It seems like there was a charismatic leader situation behind how out of control and horrific that whole situation became. Hi, Lisa. Thank you very much for asking me about this. And as a matter of fact, we did cover the torture uh, that occurred at, and I don't, I probably uh, grossly mispronouncing this. I've really only seen it in writing a lot more than I've heard people talk about it. But uh, Abu Ghraib and um, Guantanamo Bay and uh, other places in the world where the United States government has sanctioned and allowed torture in complete violation of the Geneva Conventions and every civilized uh, rule and norm of behavior that is um, recognized by the international community, right? Um, you know, outside of countries like um, Iran or China or places that we, you know, know are just committing human rights abuses on a, you know, on a daily basis, the rest of the world looks at that and goes, yeah, that's not really okay, and we're not going to be okay with that, and it's going to be illegal to do it. And the United States, under the uh, quote-unquote leadership, I use that term very loosely in describing George Bush's administration and after in the post 9-11 world, uh, under Donald Rumsfeld, who was the Secretary of Defense, and uh, with um, Vice President Dick Cheney, uh, we had a structural systemic abuse problem. And while it is not unique to those individuals or that time period that the United States has acted in horrific ways, towards prisoners of war or uh, other enemies or combatants, uh, it's particularly heinous and applicable to your question that it did occur under those three people and it was their orders and directives and authorizations that allowed it to occur. However, they are not singly and individually and personally responsible as though nobody else in this entire structure had nothing else to do with it. What happened was authorizations of policy occurred. Uh, the CIA was involved in this. There were independent consultants that were involved in this. I believe there's a, uh, a movie uh, with Adam Driver called The Report, which documents a lot of the investigation of this and the uncovering of what occurred and how it occurred. 
uh, once Congress became aware of this and once the once it had become a media problem and, a, and an image problem, that's when uh, there were lies told by President Bush, by uh, other administration officials covering up uh, what they damn well knew that had been going on. And then it just the, the data just kept coming and coming and Congress started investigating and uh, I'm not purporting to, you know, report on the entire thing. There's a lot of moving parts to this whole picture. Um, but the bottom line was the entire truth ended up coming out. Bush had to apologize publicly. Rumsfeld tried to resign twice. Bush would not let him. He would not accept his resignation. And Dick Cheney was uh, relatively, um, you know, un unaccountable in this whole thing, as was the CIA. There were a number of military personnel in the entire chain of command who were uh, who went to jail, who were um, fined, who were demoted in rank, who were kicked out as a result of all of this, rightfully so, every single one of them. And in fact, the penalties were probably not anywhere near as stiff as they should have been for what they did on the ground to these human beings that they had detained. And one estimate I read was that 80% of the people that they detained at Abu Ghraib were not even guilty of anything except being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And yet they were literally tortured, uh, sexually molested, sleep deprived, food deprived, uh, beaten, uh, raped, made to made to watch uh, the rape of others. I mean, really, really, really nasty stuff. The worst kind of stuff, Nazi level stuff, happened in these um, prisons and uh, Guantanamo Bay. I'm talking about as well as Abu Ghraib. So, how does this happen? What what did we look at from a from a perspective of coercive control here? Well, in addition to the, the structural problem I've laid out, which allowed and rationalized all of this, not an unimportant point. And the reason I made it is because that was necessary for this to occur. Um, it was authorized behavior. It had a seal of approval up and down the chain of command. This is where we start seeing shades of or parallels to the Stanford prison experiment, which a lot of people in social sciences tend to poo-poo and say, oh, it was, you know, not a real standard scientifically conducted experiment. Therefore, we don't have to pay any attention whatsoever to what happened there. Uh, this is Philip Zimbardo's work. And this is something else we studied in some detail. And the Stanford prison experiment, you can look up. There's a whole Wikipedia page about it. There are whole books about it. Zimbardo has written about it. And there are absolutely things that we learned about cultic behavior and about how authority can be assigned and used and misused and how identity can allow a person to become abused and feel that they deserve it or need it or they are in a position where that's deserved um, it, you know, on both ends, right? This whole codependent thing that I talk about from time to time between the cult leader and the followers and how both kind of need each other in certain ways. Um, there's a lot to learn from this, right? And then nothing I'm saying makes any of this okay. This is all horrifically awful stuff. At the Stanford prison experiment, it was bad. It got a thousand times worse. At, at these um, concentration camps that we call military prisons, which occurred during in the post 9-11 world. 
uh, the people involved were were it was made clear to them by the CIA consultants, if we're to believe the reports and information that I've seen on this. This was a CIA sanctioned program, and they brought in contractors who came up with all these uh, ingenious methods of how to torture people and thereby get them to confess to things. And it was proven that absolutely 0.0% of the information that was received by these confession torture sessions was of any operational use or value. None of it worked. None of it was necessary. None of it helped. It was simply a bunch of sick, psychotic people at the top authorizing this behavior and these contractors and military personnel uh, losing their damn minds. Um, and, you know, if I might quote the um, uh, movie The Deep Throat from, uh, from the Watergate era, um, you know, All the President's Men, that's the name of the movie, if I might quote from that. You know, these are not bright people and things got out of hand. And that's exactly what happened here uh, in, in this, this context of your question is that uh, low-level and mid-level military personnel uh, were given the idea in a tight, cloistered situation, cut off from the outside world to the degree that there were no press there, there was no out, eyes and ears on them, and the chain of command was authorizing this behavior. Therefore, well, this must be okay. And so things went from kind of bad to seriously bad to unbelievably bad to so bad that we are in no way, shape, or form the good guys here. There is no justification for what these people did to those prisoners or how they were treated. And, um, and yet this is, the, this is a cultural phenomenon. It's a contagion, you could say where once you enter the right mix of circumstances, the, the, the isolation, the manipulation, the control, these are the factors, these are the ingredients of coercive control. And this was a coercive control situation writ as large as it gets. And, um, and people can, and unless you are an individual who has a unique sort of, and I'm going to say a sort of unique genetic makeup or background that allows you to entirely buck every aspect of the social situation you find yourself in. And I'm talking about a very, 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 very tiny percentage of people who fit that description. Unless you're one of those people who you can walk into a situation where everybody is completely out of control and you can see that and go, I'm not doing this, right? Unless you're that guy, you enter into one of these situations and you go from bad to a little more bad to a little more bad to all the way bad. It's a gradual thing. It's no different than what we talk about when how people get acclimated like the frog in the boiling water. You put them in when it's not boiling and you slowly turn it up. That's how people come to accept and become part of this kind of behavior. Whereas were they not put in that situation, they would never agree to do that kind of thing. And individually, they would agree with you. That's crazy. That's nuts. I would never do that. 
Well, then they find themselves doing it. And so many more people than you imagine, including probably you watching this, are completely susceptible to this, right? It's just part of our makeup that we go along with groups we are part of. And that when we are authorized and we are told that we are the good guys, we are on the side of right, it is us who are always right and them who are always wrong, that it justifies and we can rationalize doing the most heinous acts against other people, the most wor the worst things you can imagine. And then things get out of hand because once it's okay and the entire culture is making it okay, the soldiers, in other words, are telling each other and sharing and talking and congratulating each other and they are being acknowledged for being monsters. They are being told this is a good thing. You're doing a good job here. Once that enters into it, then the individuals start applying their own imagination and creativity and initiative to this task because of all those reasons. And that's when things go completely off the deep end because then everybody's actively participating in this thing and not having to all be ordered to do it. And the photographs that came out of Abu Ghraib were crystal clear that that's exactly what was going on, right? These people had somehow turned into these human monsters and it was because the entire moral code and moral landscape of the situation they were in was rewritten for them to make it okay for them to be that way. It's a very, very dark side of humanity and of our nature that all the things I'm saying right now are true. I'm not saying I want them to be this way. This isn't something I believe to be true. I'm explaining what's literally happened in the real world over and over and over again. Everything I just told you applies 100% to every single concentration camp and the uh, roundup of um, every undesirable, every level of undesirable uh, under Islam, under Nazi Germany, under uh, Pol Pot, under Mao. Every single time these people take over these ruthless authoritarian dictator types, these human predators, every time they take over, this is what happens. They change the moral landscape under of the entire social structure they run. That's what happens, right? That's how morality kind of works is it's a, it's a social group construct kind of thing. And we're the ones who create that, right? As a group, not individually, as a group that's created. And that's, that's kind of an important thing to know about how we think about what's right and wrong and good and bad. It has everything to do with the context and situation we find ourselves in as to what the values are. And in those situations where we have authorized torture and, and extreme interrog enhanced interrogation techniques... I love these dumbass euphemisms uh, for just straight up torture. Uh, where that is the good thing to do, we can adjust our behavior accordingly, right? At least some of us can. Most of us can. The, the, again, this isn't because I want it to be this way. It's empirically true that it's this way. We've seen this over and over and over again throughout history, and there is no nationality. There is no religion. There is no set of values you can come in with that are going to protect you against a group demanding that you change. 
And when you think your own personal survival and or your own emotional needs are somehow dependent upon this group doing what it does and continuing to survive. In other words, these were soldiers in this prison camp who were torturing these prisoners. They were part of an outfit, a social setup that they were absolutely identifying with and absolutely perceived as being on the side of, of good and right and true, right? Um, and that's how that worked. Uh, the opposite is also true. I mean, this is how terrorists are made. Same, same set of circumstances, same kind of setup, right? How is it okay to go blow up a city or go blow up a cafe or go blow up a movie theater? How do you get somebody into a, a headspace like that? I, I mentioned before, a lot of ego pumping, right? A lot of love bombing, a lot of like really drive up the importance of the person and their cause, their mission, their purpose. You got to really pump that up. And, and the whole group, the whole culture that they are in has to be pushing and demanding that this is the good and right and true thing to do. And that's, that's, the, that's kind of the relativity of it, right? I want to point out it, it happens on all ends of the awful. But this is, this is the worst aspects of uh, what we look at as coercive control. So ugh, nasty, nasty stuff. But you, it's a great question, and it's something I wanted to talk about for a while. So thanks, Lisa, for asking. Anonymous. The insider revealed that after the chase wave, certain staff were threatened by the org that they should keep quiet or else they would be turned into law enforcement. This has the effect of increasing the hold of the org over these people. This reminds me of the database of abusers kept by the JWs. After an internal sex abuse investigation with all the two witness rule conflicts and other bias issues, the case is hidden from the public and law enforcement, but stored away in the database. This type of thing is a way of making super loyal soldiers for the org out of the abusers. Alexandra Stain alludes to people in cults being turned into deployable assets in that these people are so loyal to the org that they can be used for tasks strongly against the individual's own interest. Presumably, some of these cases involve blooding with guilt of some form, akin to a new gang member having to commit a crime to get in. The question here is whether anybody studies this aspect of coercive control and destructive orgs in general. It seems that looking across all the orgs we know about and studying this as an aspect of control in all its various forms would be interesting. Who might do such a thing? This is one area where these orgs do seem to show some legal exposure and showing that it is pervasive across orgs would help try to deal with them at the societal level. Okay, thanks for this question. And interestingly, you kind of answered it yourself almost uh, in the question because you mentioned Alexander Stain, for example, as somebody who absolutely studies exactly this kind of thing, disorganized attachment. I've had her on my podcast twice, if you guys are interested in that, um, and how love, terror, and brainwashing works, right? That's what Alexandra has written about. And she's made her, her whole life study to uh, talk about those things. So, you know, there's somebody whose work I could recommend. John Atack um, in Opening Minds has also delved into uh, how this kind of phenomena works a bit. It's, it's touched on in lots of different places, including gang work and terrorism and counter-terrorist work. 
uh, public policy works uh, gets into this by people who uh, are trying to solve urban issues or things like that. Or, you know, we have, uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways this manifests, you could say. And so it's sort of uh, addressed on a sort of either subject by subject or case by case or religion by religion or cult by cult. You know, it's kind of broken down that way. And I don't know that anybody has, I've not seen anybody take this one exact point of coercive persuasion, we might say, um, you know, this business of, of leveraging a person's uh, crimes or misgivings or guilt against them in order to control them or seal the deal, so to speak, with them staying in the group. This is, it's a, it's a very interesting point of coercive control to isolate. And certainly, like I said, something that we talked about and studied in my, um, in my master's program, but, um, but that's kind of what I can say about it really is it's just, I, I don't mean to be brush off at all. You, the, the question is a very thorough question. And it really, like I said, it kind of answers itself in that, uh, that's how it's studied. And, um, and it, but I don't, I will push back a little bit that somehow by studying that one aspect of this, we might open the door to how we could prosecute some of these more destructive cults or organizations, because this is a well understood and known phenomenon, right? Like, like police and gangs and counter gang groups, they know about how this works. Um, and they understand the psychological bonding that occurs between people who commit crimes and are now part of this group of I'm now a criminal, right? So I'm no longer a citizen. I'm in this side of the equation, not this side. Um, this is a well-understood phenomenon. It has to, do, And in psychology, we have a lot of identity theory um, and personality theory that, that goes in this direction or would talk about this. Uh, sociologically, you could talk about group identities and uh, group versus group and how, you know, how groups change or individuals will change uh, going from one group to another. So it's, so it's not, you know, uncovered territory. I, at least I don't feel from what I've um, learned about stuff here. But I don't think that studying that one thing is going to necessarily help. I think that the um, authorities and policymakers and people generally in charge of this stuff kind of already understand this phenomenon, at least, at least the ones I've spoken with or, or have talked to. PM, I have a question regarding the structure of the RTC Religious Technology Center. As far as I understand, after reading about RTC on Wikipedia, the board consists of the chairman of the board, David Miscavige, DM, and other members, although I can't find who the other members are. Are there authority laws that the board must follow and accounts that must be reported to the authorities about their annual meetings? Can the members of the board or members of the Church of Scientology legally vote to replace DM as chairman of the board? Or is the only option that a larger number of Sea Org members and board members join together so they outnumber DM's entourage of bodyguards so they can, quote, unquote, help DM to, quote, voluntarily be escorted to a car that takes him to Gold Base? Once there, he is escorted or carried if necessary and thrown into a locked windowless room with a desk and a simple bed where a small inscription carved into the wall above the bed is visible that reads, Shelley was here. All right. Well, very funny and, um, and an interesting question, except for the fact that what is the entire basis of your question is actually off, and it, but it's not uncommon. 
Uh, we have seen this, this question asked many, many times ever since the Church of Scientology restructured itself in the 1980s uh, so that there could be an authoritarian dictator at the head of the whole thing, namely L. Ron Hubbard. Then he died and David Miscavige took over this structure. But the entire structure was built, and this is important, the entire structure was built so that one guy could run the entire operation, but it would look like from the outside that there's a board of directors, that there are organizations and corporations and corporate bylaws and boards of directors and all of the usual societal norms were being acknowledged and sort of given uh, a veneer of reality in the world of Scientology, right? There are corporate structures. There is a hierarchy. There is a labyrinth of corporations that makes up the, the full body of the Church of Scientology. Every single individual church is a corporation. The management units are corporations. Uh, the publications orgs are separate corporations. They all have their little boards of directors. But, you know, every single one of the members of all of those boards, L. Ron Hubbard figured this out in the 50s and 60s, every member of the board has turned in to David Miscavige, or at the time L. Ron Hubbard, an undated signed letter of resignation. So anytime L. Ron Hubbard wanted somebody gone, he just put a date on it. You're out of here. And then the next guy would come in and one of the, one of the prices of admission onto a board of directors in the church of Scientology is that you turn over an undated signed letter of resignation to David Miscavige. If he doesn't want you in that position, you're out of there. And he controls that very tightly. He learned that from L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, so it doesn't matter who the board of directors are. It doesn't even matter if they're Scientologists or not. Right? This policy is not just something you can use with Scientologists. Anybody who comes in, give me that un undated signed letter of resignation. Right? In other words, here's your termination papers that I've got in my desk drawer. And if you don't tow the line and do what I say, you're out of here. And that's just one method of control. That's just an administrative point of control. There are many, many other uh, methods of, of control and disposal that David Miscavige has available to him. So this entire labyrinth thing that you're asking about, you know, well, could they vote him out or could enough Scientologists get together? No, not ever. That's the entire thing is a sham setup. It's never going to work that way because it's designed not to work that way. It's designed to work this other way, which is Miscavige in the top. What he says is what goes and everybody complies. Period. That's it. And that's exactly how David Miscavige runs that operation, exactly the same way that L. Ron Hubbard ran it. There was nominally, in other words, in name only, right? There have been structures and hierarchies of command and command channels that have been set up within Scientology. I did it years ago. I did an entire video breakdown of that. As far as I know, it's still good. For the most part, as far as I know, that all still holds true. And I showed how there was a whole structure 
And then I showed how David Miscavige ignores all of it at his whim because he can order anybody at any time to do anything from the lowest to the highest. He's got complete control. That's by design. That's not just him abusing the system. That's how the system was designed to work. And it was, and they used a facade of language and corporate structuring to make people like y'all think, oh, this is run just like IBM is. This is run just like any company is. No, it's not. It's not at all. And that's, again, this is a very, very important point. And if you want to read about all of this in more detail, this has been reported on a number of times on Tony Ortega's uh, Underground Bunker. If you look up any articles or writings by Denise Brennan, uh, this is the person who actually put all this together at the behest of David Miscavige and L. Ron Hubbard in the 1980s. And uh, Denise is no longer with us, but uh, her writings uh, persist. So you can check out Tony's reporting and Denise's comments on this. And it, and it's all broken down in, I, I think, in fact, Denise wrote a whole book or pamphlet or something that really kind of broke all this down. Pretty sure you can find it on the Internet if you look around for it. If I can, I'll post a link to it below for you guys. So I'll see if I can dig that up. There you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. Jonathan Perry. In the United States military, there is a policy where you're allowed to disobey an unlawful order. Does anything exist like this in Scientology? If a superior is violent at you, why can't you defend yourself and retaliate? I know there's the suppressive person thing, but if you knock the guy out, even though he's in command, why can't you call him a suppressive person? The leadership breaks Hubbard's rules all the time. Okay, well, the fast answer to this question, Jonathan, is that, yes, there is an orders query policy where if you receive an order that is illegal offline or, you know, otherwise not something you should be receiving, uh, you can, within your rights, ignore that order or query it, right, because just ignoring it is probably going to get you in hot water. So you query it, you send a written, you know, nope, I don't want to do this. And, um, and of course, I've told the story of what happened when I queried an order from David Miscavige, told that a, a few times on this show, uh, you know, I received the uh, third degree from a couple of RTC staff within a couple days of sending that order's query. So there are consequences depending on who it is that you are querying. If it's your immediate senior, let's say you're in the Sea Org, right, and, and your senior comes along and he's some low-level, mid-level guy, you know, nobody of consequence, in other words, and he starts batting you around or beating you up or something. There is actually Sea Org policy that says you have you you can start you know wailing on each other if some and that and the policy specifically states if somebody is preventing you from getting your job done, right? Then you have the power to move them the hell out of your way, no matter what it takes. And this would justify and was used to justify to our entire base uh, violence. And people getting into, you know, altercations over being stopped from doing their job. And you can interpret that any way you want up and down the command channels. But there are certain individuals, there's a certain point of authority where you start laying hands on people and uh, you're going to be in an awful lot of trouble, right? There is no one ever, ever 
who's going to be allowed to uh, start beating up on David Miscavige, right? Or on somebody who's, you know, an officer or somebody who's really got some authority or some, uh, you know, something like that, right? And also, by the way, an awful lot of those people on the Scientology in the Sea Org command lines are female. Uh, so that's another reason why they tend to not necessarily get, you know, into physical altercations. Um, just kind of an interesting observation, maybe. Uh, no, I think that's still true, actually. So not sure how that always, it would be an interesting study if I could get all the data on that to find out how it is that that kind of pans out to be that way. But um, generally speaking, males uh, have a, and this is a general, this is speaking from experience of having reviewed hundreds of personnel files as a Scientology manager. Um, generally speaking, guys come into Scientology with a rather checkered past more often, especially of sexual escapades, than females do. And so they tend to out not be qualified for high-level positions, which always seem to require or mandate a clean, spotless record of never having broken any of Scientology's rules, even before you knew about them. Uh, and that's why women tend, I think, to rise faster than men uh, in the organizational structure of Scientology. So there you go. Owen Raybold, thanks for all your videos and output on the subject of Scientology and other cults. One thing I'm curious about, when a departing Sea Org member is charged a freeloader debt, can they not retort by asking for back paid wages? It seems as though if the church is going to retrospectively treat them as a paying customer, could they in turn treat the church as an employer who has failed to pay them for all their work? Uh, sure, you could ask. <laughs> I mean... Uh, no, you know, again, let's remember that Sea Org members and Scientology staff are classified legally as volunteers and they sign contracts, legally binding contracts agreeing to that. They are not owed anything by Scientology. That's in the contract. It's 100% in Scientology's favor, not on the staff member or Sea Org member's favor. So there is no such thing as back pay owed doesn't even exist as a concept in Scientology. So there you go. Alex C. Have you ever witnessed a low-ranking Sea Org member blow up at a higher-ranking senior? What happened? When you were in charge, did anyone blow up at you? Yes, I blew up at seniors from time to time, and I observed other people do that. And yes, people blew up at me when I was a you know mid-level Sea Org manager. And somebody had had enough and decided that they were going to lay into me or, or, you know, get, let me know what was what. And, um, results may vary, right? Depending on the situation, depending on the people involved. Sometimes that would be responded to with, um, physical violence. Sometimes that would be responded to with punishments. More often than not, it was that. Um, sometimes it was, wow, this person's blowing up. Usually they don't, what the hell's going on here? And there was actually a little bit of care and compassion and Hey man, what the hell, what's going on here? Right. What's tell me what, tell me what's happening. Right. And that would be an approach that a senior or high, high, uh, ranking senior might use. Uh, so it depended always on the situation and the people involved as to what was going to go down. But yeah, I definitely observed that happen many times over the years. They Sea Org members and staff are, you know, only human after all. 
All right. So that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me gab on about all of this. I hope you found my show informative, educational, and entertaining, maybe. Uh, And if you did, consider uh, supporting the show through Patreon. And of course, I will remind you all, I do consulting. So if you are in need of consultation on a professional level, not therapy, not treatment, consultation, I will help you uh, if you are either recovering from a destructive cult or a coercive control situation, or you need help with a family or friend who is stuck in such a situation. Maybe I can advise or give you some uh, data that might help. All right. I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.